passage on which today's teaching is based comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17, probably one of the most widely known um, and studied or commented or read um, or heard of passages in all of Scripture. I'm going to read from verse 32 uh, to 51, but we're really going to be walking through the entire chapter, so if you have your Bibles handy, that would be greatly um, helpful uh, as we walk through the text. Verses 32 to 51. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been, fight- he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried, carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and, uh, and, and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into, into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And this is God's word. We learned last week that the Spirit of God flooded David's life. It, It made him bold. In other words, David wasn't a king because he had boldness. He became bold. That's important because even though uh, we live in an advanced culture, 
Our culture is more anxious than ever before. And this passage shows us the key then to get courage. Where do you get it? How do you find it? Probably one of the most famous passages, if not the most famous passage in, in the Old Testament. We're going to go look at three things today. Um, simplistically, we're going to look at the valley, the armor, and the champion. The valley, the armor, and a champion. The valley is going to tell us what courage is. The armor is going to tell us natural ways that we deal with our fears, and the champion shows us where you're going to find real courage. First, we're going to look at uh, the valley. The valley shows us uh, what courage really is. Verse 3, earlier in the chapter, the Philistines are standing on a hill, the Israelites are on the other, and between them there's this valley. And you see, the Philistines and the Israelites, uh, they, they were enemies. They were at war. And so they set up battle lines right there. And if you go to the valley where this battle takes place, it's a gruesome area. Battles in those ancient times were gruesome, bloody, limbs just flying around everywhere. People died there. It was a bloodbath. This is the valley of the shadow of death. And in verse 4, in this valley, Goliath, this hulking giant, shows up. He's a giant. And in verse 10, he says, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And verse 11, on hearing this, Saul and all the Israelites, they were dismayed and they were terrified. They were cowering. There was fear. Saul is a king, but he's paralyzed with fear. He's a king, but he's ruled by fear. In other words, he's a slave. He's not kingly. The army is not kingly. Verse 16, 40 days go by. Whenever you see the number 40 in the Old Testament, uh, 40 days, uh, it represents the condition of God's people, the whole of God's people. In other words, that's us. We're perpetually and forever driven by our fears. The text says no one comes forward. No one came forward. So what is courage? What is courage in this place? David in verse 32, he says, let no one lose heart. Why? Because everyone, everyone, especially the king, Saul, he lost heart. And he, he actually says, let no one's heart fall away. Let's no one, let no one's heart get away from him. In other words, let no one lose courage. Let no one be discouraged. In other words, if you do the wrong thing, if you do the selfish thing, if you run, you may save yourself. But sometimes you're going to do the right thing. You're going to do the unselfish thing. You're going to do the selfless thing, regardless of what's going to happen afterwards, whether it's safe or not. And that's courage. Now, the ancient cultures knew that you can't live without boldness. You can't live without courage. Why? Because there were diseases. There were wars. It was a, an insecure time. It was a dangerous world. But think about it. If that's the case, you still need courage because there's still disease. I mean, we know that. There's still disease. There are still wars. Life is still incredibly uncertain. It's insecure. The world is still a dangerous place. If anything, you can make a case and say it's a more dangerous place. So every time you give in to the pressure of friendships, every time you give in to the pressure of your boyfriend or your girlfriend, every time you give in to the pressure of the neighborhood, every time you give in to your selfishness or your desires, every time you give in to your fear, fear is actually dictating every, you know, sing, a sing, even if a single moment in your life, you are a coward. And most of us, if you're honest, you, we react and we make decisions 
out of fear. Now, there are some of you that are saying, really? I mean, you're going to compare peer pressure with blood and violence and war? Absolutely. Why? Because the greatest nightmare in our lives today, I mean, the greatest nightmare in your life today is, um, is not going to be uh, physical death. Oftentimes, it's humiliation, the loss of your reputation, the loss of approval. I'm going to give you some examples. There are parents here watching right now. There are parents that are so afraid of losing their ground at work that they overwork. And as you overwork, you're fighting the guilt because you know you're neglecting your child. That fear of losing your status or your position, that fear of losing ground at work is actually greater than losing your child. There are people watching right now. You just can't say no to your boyfriend. You can't say no to your girl. You were ruled. Your boyfriend or your girlfriend has a power over you. Or maybe it's your spouse has a power over you. Maybe it's your children. They have a power over you. The fear of anything happening to your family, happening to your children. Or maybe the bed. You know, you're just lazy. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to get up from your couch. You, uh, or maybe it's, the, uh, maybe it's uh, your, your diet. You know, the things you like to eat. Or maybe it's your looks. You give in to your looks over and over. You're constantly bowing and relying on your looks. Or maybe it's your syllabus. Maybe it's your books. And it makes you self-absorbed. It makes you self-centered. And it's killing your relationships. I mean, you give into any of these things, it's going to kill your relationships. And it's all because of your fears. Fear makes you very myopic, very nearsighted. You only see yourself. You only think for yourself. You may be thinking, but I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about uh, my spouse. I'm thinking about the person I love. But in actuality, you're thinking about yourself because you're thinking about how you'll feel if anything happens to them. That's not a genuine love, you see? And that's certainly not courage. That's Saul. That's the king. That's Israel. That's us. The essence of courage is confronting your heart's greatest nightmare and still doing the right thing regardless of the outcome. That's what courage is. That's the battle line. That's the valley. Now, the armor. What's the natural way that we deal with fear? I used to think that David must have been incredibly brave. I mean, he is just a boy, it says. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he, but he, he's a hero here. But verse 4 actually says that it's Goliath that's the champion. And what that means is that Goliath and David are both heroes in this story. They're both courageous in this story. They're just diametrically opposed. Now, you have to look at this. In most ancient texts, you almost never see details the way you see them kind of laid out in this chapter. Writers in the ancient times, my guess is because it, it was hard to, you know, write on paper back then, right? Uh, they had to be very economical with their words. But this is an ancient text. And yet, Goliath is given very detailed descriptions. Look at verses 4 to 7 in the text here. First, he starts with his height in cubits. The author goes to great lengths to describe his height, what he wears. He's got a bronze helmet. He wore coats of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's around 125 pounds. I mean, that was his armor. He was wearing armor that was pretty much the weight of certain people. Uh, he had bronze on his legs. He wore bronze grease, and he carried a bronze javelin. Uh, 
the author goes to great lengths to describe the spear, the iron point. Lots of detail. What does that mean? Robert Alter. Robert is a, a professor at Berkeley, um, and he's a scholar, probably one of the greatest right now in our, in our day. And he says this of the description of Goliath. He says that this, Goliath's description is the most unique in all of ancient Hebrew literature. In all of ancient Hebrew literature. And this is what he says. He says, Goliath moves into action as a man of iron, a man of bronze. In other words, he's a man of steel. He's an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. And this is a hulking monument to an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. What is he saying? We, talked about this last week, we are obsessed with the exterior. We are absolutely obsessed with externals. And that's why we're so afraid. That's why we live in fear. Because who is, who is Goliath? Who is like Goliath? Goliath represents the natural, worldly way that we view how to get courage. One, he relies on his skills. He relies on his gifts. Goliath is a physical specimen. He's tall. We look at a person's athleticism. You know, nowadays, one of the things I can't stand about ESPN today, I mean, I used to, be, I used to watch ESPN religiously, SportsCenter religiously, but SportsCenter from the 80s going into the 90s kind of shifted from talking strategy into moving into focusing on individual stars. And nowadays, when you talk to people who love basketball, who love football, they just focus on individual people. They know it's a team game, but they focus on individual people because we've bought into this sports center mentality of an individual. We focus on the skills, the, the athleticism, the physique of a person. And Saul was tall. Goliath was taller. And so Saul cowers. Everyone is cowering. Saul, he's just bought into this concept of Goliath. Verse 33, Saul says to David, you can't beat him. Look at him. You're young. You're just a boy. And he is experienced. He's gifted. He is skilled. He, David, he was largely overlooked. No one cared about David's gifts. No one even considered what David's gifts were, really were. But in verses 34 to 37, David, I mean, as he's walking up to the battle lines, he sees what's going on, and everybody's kind of standing in line. No one's moving. And David says, I don't get it. I mean, like, what's the problem? David instinctively says, I killed a lion. I killed a bear. Very powerful animals. A lion and a bear. I learned to kill things. I grew up killing things that are much bigger than me. Hand to hand. Right? Hand to paw. Right? Face them. He says, I grabbed them by the hair. They were faster than me. They were stronger than me. But I learned to defend. I learned to protect the things that I care for. I learned to act instinctively. In other words, God trained David with all the instinctive skills he needed to defend himself, to lead. Secondly, Goliath relies on his credentials. Goliath was trained since he was a boy, and David was just a boy. Verses 38 to 39, when Saul placed his tunic and his armor, his helmet over David, David, I mean, he wasn't trained to fight. He says, I'm not, I'm not used to this, right? He wasn't trained. I'm not, I don't know how to use this stuff. And he says, I can't go in these. 
I mean, David was poor and his technology was primitive. A staff and a sling. Later on, Goliath sees David and he's just offended. He says, uh, he says am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? In other words, am I, he's insulted. He says, am I primitive? Am I low? Do you know who I am? Look at me. He's insulted because Goliath came ready with his latest scale armor, bronze greaves, bronze greaves back then, high tech. And Goliath, he's trained, he's advanced. Thirdly, Goliath relied on his instincts, that his instincts gave him much confidence. Verse 42, he's been in tons of battles. You need to talk about Malcolm Gladwell and his 10,000 hours. Goliath has been trained to fight since he was a child, so he just kind of measuring up, sizing you up, can know I have an edge here. So he, in verse 42, he looked David over. In other words, he was sizing him up. That's what we do. We're constantly focused on externals. We size ourselves up with other people. He looks at David and he says, I am twice your size. I'm stronger. I'm advanced. I'm high tech. Goliath had absolutely no doubt. There's no evidence in any of this text, any part of this text, that he had any fear, right? He sees no danger here, and yet that's the problem. That's the issue. Because this is how the world deals with fears. Arm yourself. Train yourself. Build yourself. Work out. Accumulate. Increase your power. Increase your options. Increase your skill sets. That's how you shield yourself from your fears. But the problem is, one, Goliath was myopic. Goliath was blind. He was blind to the one thing that he needed to win, the one thing that he needed to get out of this whole situation alive. He didn't have a full view, a three-dimensional view of reality. There was danger. The danger was right in front of him. David was aware of the danger. He was walking into the valley of death. He knew that. What does fear do? Real fear, though disproportionate, and it is disproportionate, it still wakes you up to a pending reality. Everyone has a Goliath-like fear, a greatest nightmare in their lives. But we often try to battle our fears in one-dimensional ways. We look at a three-dimensional reality, and we deal with them very one-dimensionally. And then later on, we complain as to why it didn't work. We try to build up our 401k, build up our salary. That's our armor. There it is. Then I'm going to be invincible then I'm going to be absolutely invincible. If I get married, then I will be protected from my fear of loneliness. If I have a good family, then I'm going to be protected from my fear of worthlessness. If I have the right career or the right job, then I will be protected from my fear of meaninglessness. That kind of courage will never help you do the right thing amidst pressure. It will never. Putting courage in things like your marriage or your family or your job, those things will extort you of courage. It's going to make you work for courage. Work and work and work. Keep building these things because then you'll feel better and you'll never feel better. You're going to constantly work to maintain a sense of security in your life, but those things are always insufficient. There's a parable, um, not analogous to this, but there's, I'm reminded of the parable of uh, a man who's constantly building and storing in his silo and then God says, today, your life will be taken from you. In other words, there is no security. There's no security. And all the things that you do one-dimensionally to build up your life, it's just one-dimensional. You're not, you're not grasping the true scope of your reality. 
Where do you find real courage when your talent or when your wealth or your reputation are insufficient? You need something bigger, something much bigger, much more powerful that will overwhelm your fears to empower you to act and do the right thing. Where did David get that courage? David says in verse 45, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, I'm going to pause a little bit. I grew up being taught. David had faith, clearly. He came in the name of the Lord Almighty, so he had faith. And if you have a faith like David, then just like he worked through David, he's going to work in your life and give you courage. And you, that courage, you're going to be able to defeat any giant in your life. But if that's what you really believe, that's just a religious version of Goliath's courage. You see that? If you're looking at yourself and you're saying, if I just trust God, if I just obey God, then God's going to come and help me. Then he's going to come and protect me. We teach our children that, and it's wrong. Because what you're doing is you're using children, you're using God, you're telling your children to use God as your armor, to use him for your armor. Just keep praying. Pray for these things, and God will protect you. And be good, because then God kind of owes you. You see, that's really what you're saying. You're still trying to deal with your fear on your own, except this time your armor is your obedience. Your armor is your goodness, and it's still insufficient. You're trying to be like David, but you're actually more like Goliath. It's why just obeying actually will turn you away from God in the long run, because at times you're going to feel like, you know God, I mean, I've been going to church, I've been praying, I've been giving, I've been serving, but when I needed God, where was he? I feel alone and unprotected. You feel like he's failed you. I mean, you've got to look at Jesus, the most obedient person that ever walked the earth. He prayed, he obeyed, he trusted, he was faithful, and did everything go well for Jesus? No, he got the cross. He died, so the lesson can't be, be like David. The lesson just can't be just, just obey, just trust. What's the lesson? Another way of asking that is, how do you get real courage then? And that's the champion. We're going to apply this text. First, in order to apply this text, you have to come to grips with the reality that you are not like David. You are Saul in this story. You are the army in the story. It's coming to grips with the reality that you, like all other people, at the core are a coward. Can you admit that? Can you own that? And secondly then, if you're a coward, much like the Israelites had, we need someone to rescue us. We need someone to go into the valley of the shadow of death for us because we're not like David. And if you're not like David, then we need a David in our lives. David was weak, untrained, young, inexperienced, refuses armor, takes it off. But his victory was not in spite of those weaknesses. David's victory came because he was weak. And here's the key. In his weakness, he became our representative. Because we were weak, David became weak. David was weak. He's our representative. He's our substitute. 
Goliath says in verses 8 to 9, he says, Choose a man and have him come down to me. In other words, let me fight this man in hand-to-hand combat. In ancient times, you chose one man. That person was your champion. That person was your legal representation. He was your legal representative as your strength. He represented the power of the entire army. In other words, David was going in the valley as Israel's best person. If you could choose one person to go in there and fight on your behalf, it was David in this case. In other words, he wasn't just fighting for Israel, he was fighting as Israel. It's why Goliath says, if he kills me, we become your subjects. It's as if this entire army defeated our entire army. So if David is courageous, they're courageous. If he goes into the valley, they're going into the valley. If David wins, then all of his country wins. What happens to David is transferred. The actual legal term for that is imputed. It was imputed to his people. Very, very important. Why? Hebrews chapter 13 says this. The author says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. The word author is the Greek word archegos. And the word perfecter is the word teleoten or teleos. What is an archegos? Well, your arch rival, your arch rival is what? It's the greatest version of your enemy. So what is then your arch ego? Your arch ego is the greatest version of yourself. It's your representative. It's your identity transferred to another person or that person's identity transferred to you. It's your substitute. Archegos is the Greek word that means champion. We have a champion. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The champion and perfecter. The word perfecter is the word teleoten, which means finisher, winner, completer. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the champion, the substitute, and the winner, the completer of our faith. You know what that means? Jesus Christ is our champion, like David was to Israel. He is our legal representative that went into the valley of the shadow of death. Well, David went into the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus went into the valley of death, and he won. Jesus Christ is our ultimate David, Jesus became weak. Jesus became vulnerable. Jesus emptied himself of all the things that he could have come and protected himself with, his armor. He took it off. He emptied himself of that. But he didn't save us in spite of his weakness. He saved us through his weakness. And he didn't save us from physical death. He saved us from eternal death. He didn't rescue us from slavery, physical slavery, but he rescued us from our slavery to sin, the ultimate slavery. And he didn't save us at the risk of his life. I mean, David saved us, saved his people at the risk of his life. Jesus saved us at the cost of his life. David went into the valley of death, but Jesus Christ went into the ultimate valley as our champion, the ultimate valley of death, and he won. And he won through his weakness. And he was crucified, and he was dead, and he was buried, and he paid the penalty for our sin. He finished the work. In fact, on the cross, he says, the telestai, it's the same word. He says, I finished it. It's over. The war is over. There's a Latin phrase, 
to describe what was going on here because in verse, uh, at the end of this text, verse 50 to 51, David stands over this massive person and he takes Goliath's sword, barely gets it up there and he chops off Goliath's head. That sword was intended for him. Goliath looked at David and said, this sword is gonna be the end of you, but it turned out to be the end of him, his own sword. The Latin phrase for that is lex talionis. The Latin phrase, it, it connotes using your enemy's greatest strength, what's used to kill everyone else to kill him. David used Goliath's sword against Goliath. Jesus Christ uses the enemy's greatest sword, death. He died, and through that death, he chops off death's head. You see that? That's why he had to be weak. That's why he had to empty himself. That's why he was weak. That's why he was humble. And if God could use Jesus' weakness and Jesus' humility and Jesus emptying himself and Jesus giving all, you don't think that he could use you and your weakness in your humility, in your service, in your giving? Surely God will use that. What is your greatest nightmare? I'm afraid to lose my love. I'm afraid to lose my reputation. I'm afraid to lose my future, my security, my life. You face any trial like a giant, like Goliath, on your own, saying, if I lose these things, then I've lost my joy, I've lost my freedom, it's gonna be like I'm in hell, but look how hard you're working to finish, to finish it on your own, to protect these things. You've already lost. You're already a slave. But Jesus Christ on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, the wrath of God is pouring out on him and God turns himself away. Forensically, he basically turns himself away, legally turns his back on Jesus. And right there, he says, I'm forsaken. I've lost the Father. I've lost God. I'm experiencing my greatest nightmare, losing God. That is the ultimate hell, losing God, being separated from God. And yet, do you know, in Gethsemane, knowing what, would have, what, what was going to happen, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's courage. It's knowing the outcome, knowing you're going to lose, and yet still doing the right thing. He obeyed. And he went to the cross, and on the cross he said, to tell us die, it is finished. That same root word as finisher. He's saying the war is now over. I've defeated death with my death. I've paid the price. I've paid the debt. He is the author and perfecter, the arch ego, the champion, and the finisher, the completer, the winner, he is our champion. Jesus Christ faced the gigantic wrath of God, the ultimate Goliath, one that no one in the world, he is undefeated in the world, and yet he defeated death. He defeated this Goliath on the cross as our substitute, and because he won, we won. Because he died, that means we already died, we already paid. Because he paid the price, we paid the price. Because he rose again, we will rise again. That is called union. Look to the beauty and the power and the strength and the courage of Jesus. Look to the humility and the weakness 
and the serving and the giving of Jesus. Now let it move you to real courage, real humility, real weakness, real service, real generosity. What sustained? I mean, how did he do it? How did Jesus do it? What gave him that courage? Hebrews 13, the author, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the arch ego and the teleos of your faith. Who for what? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Why did he endure the cross? There was a joy that was greater than all the fears he could ever experience that propelled his courage to endure the cross. Jesus Christ at Gethsemane, he says, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. Then how did he do it? Why would he do it? He had joy. A joy that even overwhelmed that sorrow. A joy that overwhelmed that fear. And what was that joy that made it all worth it? And without going into all the, the textual evidence, the answer is what? You were that joy. Seeing you rescued. Seeing you saved. Seeing you with the Father. That was his joy. It was a joy that was worth giving up the Father. It was a joy that was worth emptying himself. It was a joy that was worth going to the cross. It was a joy that was worth dying. It was a joy that was worth being buried. It was a joy that was worth all the humility and all the weakness and all the humiliation and all the sorrow and all the sacrifice, all the blood. To the degree that you trust that Jesus' joy is you, that you are his joy, he will become our joy. And we will have a joy that will overwhelm any moment of fear in our lives. You know how that works? You can face every smaller nightmare in your life. No matter how big they seem to you, they're small compared to the ultimate nightmare that Jesus endured, the lights out nightmare, the one that can actually come true. You can face every fear with courage because you have ultimate love. I'm gonna lose my love. I'm gonna lose my wealth. I'm gonna lose my reputation. I'm gonna lose my worth. I'm gonna lose my meaning. Well, you have ultimate love. You have ultimate worth, ultimate wealth, ultimate standing with God, ultimate meaning in Christ, the ultimate approval in him, union with him. Put off your selfish desires, put off your sin, and put on Christ. Let Jesus be your armor, the only armor that you need to withstand and endure every suffering, every sacrifice, every nightmare, 